Love is one of the most captivating emotions we humans can experience. Love also has a way of finding us when we least expect it. <laughs> Sometimes it has this uncanny ability to bring together two people who, at first glance, may seem like they belong in entirely different galaxies of the universe. Sounds familiar? You know, the kind of couple who seem to defy all odds and make everyone around them do a double take. Don't tell them we said that. Love has the power to move mountains and inspire acts of kindness. It can illuminate our lives and fill our hearts with joy. From the gentle touch of a lover's hand to the melodic whispers of promises, love can transcend time and space, enveloping us in a blissful haze of passion and desire, making us truly feel alive. But enough about the good side of love. How many people actually talk about the bad side? Sure. Love can make our hearts race, our minds swirl, and our souls soar. Yet, for some people, love in its intensity can also possess a darker side. It can become an all-consuming obsession, distorting perceptions, and driving people to desperate measures. Sometimes, in the name of love, lines are blurred, boundaries are crossed, and the very essence of morality is challenged. This raises the question. When will love ever push us over the edge and lead us to commit evil acts? Well, it's most likely to happen when it's taken away from us. You're listening to Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast, brought to you by MediaCorp and produced by OneUp Media. This episode contains scenes of graphic imagery and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hayden Tyrone Poulter was born in August 1961. His parents were a British couple who had made the decision to migrate to New Zealand in search of a better life. But despite the excitement of starting a new life in a foreign land, Hayden's early years were marred by a tumultuous relationship with his father. From a young age, Hayden's father, known for his explosive temper and abusive behavior, would frequently erupt into episodes of violence. This created a strained and challenging dynamic between the father and son that persisted over time. The hostile environment at home was palpable, with the constant fear of his father's outbursts casting a dark cloud over Hayden's childhood. The unpredictable and volatile nature of his father's behavior left Hayden feeling constantly on edge, anxious, and vulnerable. It's no surprise that as a young boy. Hayden struggled to understand why his father treated him with such cruelty, an experience that likely had a profound impact on his sense of self-worth and confidence. Eventually, his father left New Zealand and returned to Britain, leaving Hayden to be raised by his mother. In his teenage years, Hayden would often find himself in foster care and government care facilities known as boys' homes. Unfortunately. It was during this period that he claimed to have experienced physical and sexual abuse. In 1978, at the age of 17, Hayden made the decision to join the navy, perhaps prompted by a sense of enlightenment or a desire for a fresh start. However, 
his stint in uniform didn't go so well, and he was eventually discharged from the Navy. Following this, Hayden went on to try his hand at various jobs, such as shearing, fishing, farming, advertising, and even demolition work. This period of job exploration may have been driven by his search for a suitable career path, or it could have been a time where he was still figuring out his passions and struggling to find his calling in life. Nevertheless, 17-year-old Hayden was constantly changing jobs with remarkable frequency. It could also be due to his frequent run-ins with the law. You see, Hayden had a history of multiple misdemeanor charges dating back to his teenage years. When we looked at the records, it was revealed that he had accumulated a staggering 67 criminal convictions by the age of 35, all of which were non-violent in nature. Hayden's life was also marked by significant challenges, including his struggles with epilepsy and depression, which were further intensified by his excessive use of alcohol and drugs. This destructive cycle of substance abuse and mental health issues eventually reached a critical point, resulting in three distinct instances where Hayden attempted to take his own life. He had also briefly entered a romantic relationship with a woman and became a father to a son. However, by the early 90s, both his partner and son had left him, leaving him feeling abandoned and alone. The extent of the physical and mental anguish he endured is difficult to imagine, and yet his despondency persisted relentlessly, casting a long shadow over his entire life. However, one day in 1990, Hayden reached a breaking point and made a decision to seek help. It's 1990 in Auckland, New Zealand. The air was crisp and cool, with a gentle breeze carrying the scent of fresh flowers blooming in the nearby gardens. With a mixture of trepidation and determination, Hayden made his way to the Odyssey House, a facility for individuals with drug and alcohol addiction. Each step he took towards the entrance was cautious yet resolute. I can do this. Just a few more steps. Just a few more steps and everything will be fine. I can do this, he muttered under his breath as he approached the house. Hayden drew in a deep breath and with a determined heart, he opened the doors into the facility. The atmosphere of the Odyssey house was calm and inviting, perhaps even offering a sense of refuge. Hayden sat quietly and listened intently as one speaker after another shared their stories of battling substance abuse and their life struggles. However, his attention was captivated by one particular member, a woman named Trudy Spires. Trudy was a single mother and part-time masseuse. She had sought refuge at the facility in her pursuit to overcome her challenges with alcohol. Hayden, on the other hand, was there to address his addiction to marijuana and LSD. Despite the differences in their vices, it was evident that both of them shared a common purpose, the pursuit of sobriety and a better life. In each other's company, they found solace and support as they embarked on their paths towards recovery together. They also found one other thing that we mentioned earlier, love. Love does work in mysterious ways, but in this case, it might not be for the better. 
As Hayden's stay at the rehab house neared its end, records indicate that the couple got into a relationship and decided to leave the rehab house together. But their addictions remained a challenge they had yet to overcome. Nevertheless, the pair rented a flat in Avondale, a quiet suburb in Auckland. During this period, Hayden worked in demolition, working tirelessly to make ends meet. Trudy, on the other hand, worked part-time as a sex worker. On record, Trudy's sister described the couple as normal and nice, even though they had their fair share of arguments. Her sister also shared her positive experiences with Hayden, saying, Hayden was very polite. He was a nice, everyday man. You couldn't say anything bad about him. He was very polite, very nice. The kids all liked him. Except one, my littlest, didn't think very much of him. In the mid-90s, the couple found themselves in a familiar struggle. Hayden remained heavily dependent on narcotics, while Trudy continued to abuse alcohol. As their addiction issues persisted, their situation seemed bleak. But everything was about to take a turn for the worst. On August 29th, 1996, Trudy Spires entered a local dairy shop and robbed it, holding its owner at knife point. According to the police report, Trudy entered the shop and caught the owner off guard by putting her left arm around his chest and pressing her right arm, which held the knife, against his collarbone. Tensions were high as she then demanded, Give me all your money. The owner complied, giving her about $198 from the cash register. What happened next was unexpected. Trudy threatened the owner to call the police, saying, Get the pigs. Get the bastards. As the owner called the police, Trudy's voice could be heard on tape saying, If you don't come here, I'm going to kill your mate. Around this time, she also made unusual comments such as, Everybody's doing this. Why shouldn't I? I'm not doing this for the money. When the police arrived at the dairy and entered, Trudy adamantly refused to comply with their commands to put down the knife. Her tone grew aggressive as she issued a threat. You better not have a gun on you, or I'll kill this guy. You better not have a gun on you, or I'll f***ing kill this guy. When an officer found the left side of Trudy's body exposed towards him, he fired two shots, one hitting her in the left shoulder and the other in the left arm. Trudy dropped the knife and eventually collapsed to the floor, where she was handcuffed and later taken from the scene by ambulance. Trudy Spires was sentenced to four and a half years in prison for the armed robbery. She was transferred to Christchurch Women's Prison to serve her sentence. Unfortunately, Hayden couldn't sustain their rental payments for their flat after Trudy's incarceration, and he was now left homeless. It's unclear where he stayed during this period, but according to Hayden himself, the emotional toll of losing his girlfriend and his home triggered something within him. Something that was building up for years. For Hayden Poulter, this incident had caused a new second identity to surface. One that he calls Hell. 
It was October 19, 1996, two months after Trudy, his beloved girlfriend, had committed the robbery. Hayden Poulter was scouring a stretch of bars on a road with a disturbing intention, as he candidly stated himself, to find a bitch to kill. Around 5 a.m., Hayden came across a 21-year-old sex worker named Natasha Hogan. He approached her with the intent of soliciting her services, and after negotiating, they agreed on a price of $60 for oral sex. However, Hayden expressed a preference for the act to take place in a park rather than his car. Natasha agreed, and after they got into his car, he drove her to Simon Street Cemetery before proceeding to the park. After Hayden received the services he paid for, he retrieved a belt buckle from his belt and viciously struck her. It was dark, cold, and not a single soul in sight. There was no one out there to see what they were up to, and no one to hear Natasha's cries for help. After delivering six consecutive strikes, Hayden realized that the buckle had broken in half, but Natasha was miraculously still alive. Undeterred, he then attempted to strangle her. But even this effort proved futile. Natasha was still alive, but she was barely hanging on. Determined to complete his heinous act, he proceeded to brutally slam a 33-kilogram rock onto her head, killing her. Perhaps the most alarming fact was that when he was questioned about the excessive violence used during Natasha's murder, Hayden would be quoted on record saying, "Bitch wouldn't die." Hayden then took a handbag with him as he fled the scene. He returned to his car and drove west while rummaging through Natasha's handbag in hopes of retrieving his sixty dollars. However, his efforts were in vain as his money was still in Natasha's pocket. He then pulled over on an empty road to dispose of the handbag and his bloodstained belt buckle. He continued driving west for another half hour until he arrived at a public beach. Once there, he entered a public toilet to clean himself up. Sources state that after cleaning the evidence on himself, Hayden Poulter sat along the shoreline, observing the sunrise on the early spring morning, while contemplating the gravity of what he had done. At approximately 9:55 a.m. on the same day, the police were alerted and arrived at the park. It remains unclear who notified them, but according to some sources. A local nun who was walking her dog in the park stumbled upon the horrific scene. The following details will be graphic. When the police found the lifeless body of 21-year-old Natasha Hogan, they discovered that she had been brutally battered and pinned under the massive 33-kilogram rock. Her corpse was found face down, with her dress pulled up to her chest and her underwear pulled down to her knees. Her body was covered in blood, and semen was present. The large rock had caved her head inwards, and a condom was found stuffed in her mouth. Upon launching the investigation into Natasha Hogan's murder, the police quickly realized that the list of potential suspects was extensive. Due to the nature of her occupation, there were numerous individuals who could have been involved in her death. They then made a public appeal, urging anyone who had seen Natasha on the night of her murder or witnessed anything suspicious to come forward and contact them. Six days later, on the morning of the 25th of October, 
an anonymous letter arrived at the bustling newsroom of the New Zealand Herald. Upon opening the envelope, employees found a lengthy letter inside. The letter was characterized by messy handwriting, excessive vulgar language, and frequent misspellings. Due to the inappropriate language used in the letter, we won't be reciting its contents. However, we will provide a summary. The letter was a crude confession to Natasha's murder, filled with vulgar references against women. The sender claimed that Natasha was the fourth of his murder victims, and he claimed to have been instructed by Satan to commit the crime. The letter concluded by describing the murder, stating, I was covered in blood. It was intense. The person I killed was the most satisfying. I prefer them young. I believe Satan urges me to complete my actions. So if law enforcement doesn't intervene, there will be more victims. I might target a law enforcement officer next. Sign NBK. In no time at all, this information was sent to the police. And the hunt was on for this person named NBK. On October 26, 1996, just one day after the letter was received at the New Zealand Herald newsroom, Hayden Poulter visited Cleopatra's massage parlor located on Fort Street. It was apparent that Cleopatra's was not a conventional massage parlor, but rather one that offered unique services. Hayden proceeded to book a one-hour session with a Thai masseuse named Lara Nymphet. As the first hour drew to a close, Hayden requested additional time with Lada and booked another hour. As Lada left the room to prepare some coffee, Hayden reached under the bed and pulled out a knife. When Lada returned, hell broke loose again. That's coming up in the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast brought to you by MediaCorp and produced by 1UP Media. If you would like to share some feedback or suggest other cases that you would like us to cover, head on down to our website at asiantruecrimepodcast.com. This episode was researched, produced and written by Yo Gong Jin with audio engineering by Ethan Sam. Special thanks to executive producer Danny Cordy from MediaCorp. We hope to see you again soon in the next episode of Heinous.